You should go ahead and grab your Bibles. If you don't have one with you, uh, there are some at the end of each row. Feel free to grab one. If you don't own one, feel free to take that home as our gift to you. Um, today, uh, we begin a, a five-week in-depth look at the Lord's Prayer. We've entitled this, Teach Us to Pray, because that's the uh, question that the disciples ask before Jesus communicates the Lord's Prayer to them as a pattern for prayer. And so, if we're going to jump into the discussion of prayer, it seems appropriate that we begin with what Jesus lays out for us as, as how we should approach God in prayer. In, in reflecting on this, I think prayer is probably one of the most revealing things about our relationship with God, the most revealing thing about our theology, you see, we can write out statements of faith or doctrinal statements. We could write theological essays to describe what we believe about God. And, and those would all be the things that we would, we would state or claim. Yes, I believe this to be true of God. But what really gets to the heart of who we believe God is, is largely seen in our prayers. And how we approach Him and how we speak to Him and how we communicate to Him and what we ask of Him. More than anything else, our direct communication with God in prayer reveals who we believe He is. Which is why I think that when Jesus lays out for us the Lord's Prayer, and as much as He's teaching us how to pray, He's teaching us who God is. You notice that all of these requests that He tells us that we should make of God, these things that we should say to Him, are rooted in who He is. The prayer itself focuses on the person of God, on His nature and attributes. And so... We want to just begin by reading the Lord's Prayer. It occurs in, in two places in the Gospels. Once in Luke chapter 11, and we'll begin there in chapter 11, verses 1 through 4. Jesus was praying in a certain place, and when he finished, one of his disciples said to him, Lord, teach us to pray. And so Jesus taught his disciples. He said to them, when you pray, say, Father, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Give us each day our daily bread and forgive us our sins. For we ourselves forgive everyone who is indebted to us and lead us not into temptation. You'll find the same prayer again noted in the Gospel of Matthew in chapter 6. Jesus instructing on prayer and he says these words beginning in verse 9. Pray then like this. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Now, you may be used to hearing what is a doxology or a, or a moment of praise that's added on. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. And, and, and what that is, you'll notice it's not present, is that in the earliest manuscripts, that's, that's not a part of the prayer. It's something that the church added on to it as a, as a moment of praise, thanking God for what he's done. But it's not what's part of the earliest manuscripts of the Gospels. It's so appropriate to say or to sing or to, to pray because ultimately it's a prayer ascribing glory and honor and majesty to God. And so it's very honoring to Him and acceptable. It's just not part of the original instruction that it appears Jesus gave. But I want you to see a few things that we learn immediately about God. And these are what we're going to explore these next five weeks. You'll notice that He refers to God as Father. Let me just tell you the things that we see is that God is our Father. 
we find that God has a kingdom and we desire for it to come. God is our king. We'll find us praying for our daily bread. God is our provider. Pleading with him for forgiveness of sins because God is our redeemer. And asking him to protect us from the evil one because God is our protector. God is our father, our king, our provider, redeemer, and protector. And what we believe about God shapes the way we pray. If we believe God to be a loving father, we will approach him as such. If we believe God to be an unjust tyrant, we will approach him as such. If we believe him to be an old man on the clouds somewhere, we will approach him as such. And if we believe him to be a little genie that we rub a lamp and get what we want, we will approach him as such. And, and, and here's what I would challenge you to do just in your own heart as we begin this time. is just to ask yourselves, what does my prayer look like? What does my time in prayer look like? And, and guys, my intention is not to encourage you to feel guilty in any way. You'll see that plainly as we go through this today. I think most of us, if you were to ask a Christian, how is your time in prayer? If we want to use what the, the common Christian is, your prayer life, that's the phrase that we use. How is that? Most of us would say, not as good as it ought to be. Not as regular as I'd like it to be. Not as passionate as I would like it to be. I'm not as dependent on him in prayer as I would like to be. Most of us, if we have just a, a half inch of depth, respond in a similar way. And I think what we're getting at and what you'll see is that if we'll just see clearly who God is and who he's promised to be for us, we'll see our hearts towards him turn to him in prayer. So let's begin with the beginning. Jesus addresses God as Father. He says, when you pray, pray like this. Father. Now this is a continuation in, in many ways of, of the Old Testament's instruction about God, but it's also something very new. See, the, the term Father is used for God in the Old Testament, but surprisingly few times. Throughout the entirety of the Old Testament, which is roughly two-thirds of your Bible, God is only referred to as Father 15 times. 15. And in almost all of those, it's a national sense that God is the Father of the people of Israel. You'll find a few instances in which He foretells the coming Messiah and says, I will be His Father. Which is one of the reasons it's very important that Father is the primary means of addressing God that Jesus uses. He's saying something about himself and the way he speaks to his father. What you don't find in any of the prayers in the Old Testament is them beginning father. So, so it's embedded there, it's present, but it's rare. It's certainly not the norm if you read the prayers of the Old Testament. They, they don't begin in this way. And Jesus says this should be your pattern for prayer. So it's something old, yes, but something new. A new emphasis, a new perspective on prayer that Jesus is about to give that apparently had been missed throughout the previous ages. He begins with this description that God is our Father, which at its most basic element describes a family connection, doesn't it? That God is our Father. He is a loving caring father in both areas of the scriptures and both in Matthew 6 and in Luke 11 where he describes God as our father he also teaches us something about the kind of father he is if you look at chapter 11 verse 5 you'll see this 
And he said to them, which of you has a friend and will not go to him at midnight and say, friend, lend me three loaves of bread, three loaves for a friend of mine has arrived on a journey and I have nothing to set before him. And he will answer him from within. Do not bother me when the door is now shut and my children are with me in bed. I cannot go up and give you anything. I tell you, though he will not get up and give him anything because he is a friend, yet because of his impudence, he will rise and give him whatever he needs. And I tell you, ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives. The one who seeks finds. And the one who knocks, it will be opened. What father among you, if his son asks for a fish, will give him a serpent? Or if he asks for an egg, will give him a scorpion? If you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will the Heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask Him? And in Mark chapter 6, verse 7, you begin to see also a greater depiction of who this Father is. He says, when you pray, don't heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do. For they think they'll be heard for their many words. Do not be like them. For your father knows what you need before you ask him. So let's look at this depiction of praying to God as father. First is to know that God is a generous God. You notice that. He says, look, what dad among you, if your son or your daughter asks for something good, gives them something bad. Yeah, that's, that's not generally the way dads behave. Yeah, are there examples? Absolutely. Do some people have, have bad father experiences? Certainly. But just the general understanding of fatherhood. What is it supposed to be? Well, you, you're generous to your children. They ask for something good, you give them something good. And he says, even us, even though we're evil, even though we carry around this, this sin nature and these mixed motives and all of this baggage, he said, even, even us, we're, we're generous to our kids. How much more so will your Father in Heaven be? So God's a generous Father. We also learn that God's an attentive Father. You notice that in, in Matthew. He knows what you need before you ask Him. So God's not some disengaged, checked out father who put in his 40, came home, and, and, and he's watching ESPN while mom takes care of the kids. That's not the kind of dad he is. He's a dad who wants to shower good things upon his children, who's attentive to them, who's responsive to them, who knows what their needs are. He's a father with wisdom and compassion. It's a family relationship. It's also important to know that he's our father. He's our father. And Jesus includes us in that. So it's not just that, that, that we're all His children, but because of Christ, there's a special sense in which everyone who is under the blood of Christ and has accepted Him by faith that He died for their sins and rose again is welcomed into the family. And so prayer isn't just an individual thing, but it's a family thing where we also pray together. But pointing out that it's a family experience means in some sense there's limitations on the circle. What, what do we mean by that? Maybe if you could run back the tape of history in the last few years in America. We were attacked on September 11th and, and everyone had it ultimately, if you notice this, had a religious response to that attack. Even, even irreligious people took on the, the rhetoric of God defending us, right? And people who, who were irreligious flocked to stadiums full of people to pray. And it was, what it was, it was an interfaith prayer gathering. Now, now, here's the problem with the interfaith prayer gathering. 
is that if we understand what is rightly going on there according to the Bible, a number of those people are praying to a demon, a false god. And so ultimately, I can't pray along with that guy. Like I can pray in proximity to him, but I ultimately can't pray with him. Which is why I would say when, when people who are not believers call us to pray, we, we, we have to kind of question some things there. So if Glenn Beck throws a big gathering and asks, don't do it. He doesn't follow Jesus. I understand we might agree with his politics sometimes. Some of us might. Some of us might not. But in the end, when it comes to matters of faith, who is God? He answers that question in a drastically different way. He may call God father, but what he means is that God was once a man who was a really good man on another planet and became a God. That's not Christianity. That's not the God who created everything out of nothing. Even if you agree, even if we agree on smaller issues, when it comes to a gathering of prayer, this is a family experience. And there are some things that we reserve for family. I want you to see more about the kind of God this is. Because if you were the original recipient of this teaching, you're standing there when Jesus is teaching, you've got a, a, a good grasp of the Old Testament. The Jewish people are, are defined by the Old Testament. And so they hear the word God as Father. There's a few references in the Old Testament that would jump off the page. Because the story of God redeeming Israel out of slavery in Egypt was the story that they told over and over and over again throughout the year through ceremonies and rituals and feasts. It's a story they were all well versed with. And in Exodus chapter 4, God sends Moses. He calls him to go and to go before the Pharaoh and to demand that Pharaoh let his people go. And he says it in this way in verse 21. The Lord said to Moses, when you go back to Egypt, see that you do before Pharaoh all the miracles that I have put in your power, but I will harden his heart so he will not let my people go. Then you shall say to Pharaoh, thus says the Lord, Israel is my firstborn son. And I say to you, let my son go that he may serve me. And if you refuse to let him go, behold, I will kill your firstborn son. So when we begin to pray and we say, God, our father. Immediately, if you raised in this experience and the story of the Exodus has been told you over and over and over again, your mind begins to go to God is our father. What kind of father is he? He's the kind of dad exhibited in the Exodus. The kind of dad that goes before the greatest king in the history of the world and says, let my son go or I will crush you. Hosea chapter 11, verse 1, reiterates this. He says, when Israel was a child, I loved him. And out of Egypt, I called my son. The gospel of Matthew applies that to Jesus when he comes out of hiding in Egypt. He says, out of Egypt, I have called my son. This refers to the God of the Exodus. The kind of father that destroys nations, rips open oceans, and drowns armies to rescue his child. So what kind of dad are we talking about? We're talking about a dad who loves his children ferociously, who will defend and protect them to no end, who will go to the links of the earth to draw them back to him. The kind of father that the New Testament says will send his only son to die to redeem his lost and wayward children. He's the father of the Exodus. And see, the whole story of the Exodus begins just a chapter earlier in chapter 3. 
In verse 7, when he calls Moses immediately and begins to speak to him, the Lord said, Surely I have seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt, and I have heard their cry because of their taskmasters. I know their sufferings. I have come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians, to bring them up out of that land to a good and broad land flowing with milk and honey. This is the kind of dad depicted here. This is the story that's resonating when Jesus says, when you pray, pray God our Father and the people of Israel go, that kind of dad. That kind of dad. The kind of dad that goes berserk and destroys the most powerful nation in the world to redeem his people. The kind of dad who hears his children crying, who's attentive, who has compassion upon them, and then with great power and might moves to redeem them. The phrase over and over in the Old Testament is that with the mighty arm and an outstretched hand he delivered his people. He's that kind of dad. And I love this depiction because in God's grace, I was given a dad who shared these attributes. And in God's grace, he was given a dad who shared these attributes. In God's grace to us, I don't know if we had that lineage. and We've gotten to have my wife's grandparents live with us. And people's that kind of dad. And he says, that's the kind of dad that he is for you. And this is huge in our culture where there's absentee fathers are so common. And I know you guys aren't the men in that, in that category. So this isn't about you, but this is about those who are here that had that. This is about the people in the room that dad was either absent or MIA or just checked out. And so when you hear God as father, all of a sudden, that's not awesome. Like that, that's okay. But when God says, I'm your father, when Jesus prayed to him like a father, the depiction he has of fatherhood is a depiction of Exodus. It's a depiction of a God who knows no limits to what he'll do to redeem and rescue his children. Because he's a God like that. You can cry out to him. You notice that these two Odd pictures of God because you've got this Exodus 3 picture where he says, I've heard the cries of my people. And God's weeping with them. He's going to join them in the suffering. He's going to redeem them. So you have this gentleness and this kindness towards his children. At the same time, he is ready to destroy those who will harm his precious son. Do you see that? You have at the same time gentleness and compassion and strength and ferociousness. And if there's ever a depiction, gentlemen, for us of what fatherhood should be, it is that. Is that we are gentle and caring to those who God has placed under our protection. And we are ferocious and strong to those that would threaten them. And that's the kind of God he is. But to take this further, the Bible's depiction of God as our Father is not because it's our birthright. It's rather because He's adopted us as His sons. So we have been given this kind of dad as an adoptive father. If you read Ephesians 2, you'll find that we are not His children by our sinful nature. We are, in fact, sons of disobedience and children of wrath. But God, in His great mercy for us, through the blood of His only begotten Son, redeemed us and adopted us as His children. Adoption is one of the most common depictions of God's redemption in the Bible. And it's a powerful one because it depicts us as as being powerless, as being orphans. 
having been abused and mistreated by Satan, who, who we had followed openly as sons of disobedience. With nothing to bring to the table, with nothing to offer. And God draws us as his own. We've got to see this story play out on an earthly scale recently as, as Alicia's sister and brother-in-law have just adopted two little boys. Two little boys that what they know of their daddy wasn't good. And so one of the things with the boys was that, is, is looking at maybe what their names were going to be because there's a few thoughts behind that. But one of them is just that the name the kids had were very hard to say and they, they couldn't say them. They couldn't explain them to other people. And so in, in asking the question, well, what he brought it up. And, and so they said, well, what do you want your name to be? And he said, I want a name like my daddy. Immediately, right? I haven't been in the home a month. I want a name like my dad. I want to be like my daddy. I want to take his name on me. Because he's chosen me. He's made his, uh, me his own. That depiction of adoption is strong throughout the scriptures. You see it in Romans chapter 8. Verse 14. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by which we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God, and if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided that we suffer with him in order that we might also be glorified with him. So I want you to see the story of adoption as it's described in Romans 8. He says that we're sons of God. So we were given the Spirit of God and it makes us His children. It's not so that we'd be slaves. Not slaves to the law or slaves to our own sin, but set free by God's Spirit, adopted as His sons. But notice that. It's not by right, it's by adoption, by the will of the Father looking at us in our rancid mess of our sin. And pulling us out of that, making us His sons. And He doesn't end with that. He says, not only have I brought you into the family, but I've made you co-heirs. I've given you an, an inheritance with Jesus. That's why the Bible repeatedly tells us that those who follow Him are redeemed by Him will reign with Him. Not because we deserve it, but because He's just lavishing His love upon us, rebellious little orphan children. He says, you're mine. He says, that's a depiction of redemption. That's the imagery that should run through our minds when we think of praying to God as our Father. He's adopted us. And by the blood of Jesus, he has made us his sons and daughters. And we have an inheritance. And that spirit alive in us, that spirit of sonship, he says, you know, he says by which we cry out, Abba, Father. Now, th th that's a wonderful term. Abba is an Aramaic term that the, the closest we could get to would be daddy, although that's not exactly it. But it's a, it's a term of endearment. So when we use the word father in most cases, particularly in the south, that's not how we refer to our dads, Right? We don't, we don't say, Father, what would you like today? Never once said that. It's dad or, or daddy or pop. Old man sometimes. But it's, it's never father. So I don't want you to interpret into this father some kind of formality. Although, look, we're going to get there. He's the great king of heaven and earth. We'll get there. 
But he's our dad. There's an affinity. There's an affection present in this. And he's given us this great inheritance. In Galatians, the Apostle Paul goes, he just goes off about the blessings of God making us his sons. Begins in chapter 3, verse 26. For we, in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. For as many of you were baptized into Christ and put on Christ, there is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, male nor female, for all are one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring and heirs according to the promise. So all of these tremendous promises laid out, he says, you, you're recipients of these by God's grace, not because you deserve them, not because you were born into them, but because you have trusted in Jesus. And Jesus has been given all blessing, all dominion, all authority. And you, because of your relationship with him, share in that inheritance. He continues in Galatians chapter 4, verse 4. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but a son, and if a son, an heir through God. We talked about heaven last week and the blessings of God, this entire created order renewed, reestablished, everything accursed and, and affected by sin removed, us being completely glorified, enjoying his presence forever. That inheritance of eternally experience his goodness and kindness to us is ours as sons of God, daughters of God, not because we deserve them, but because he has chosen to make us his children. If you know anything about adoption, most small infants don't do anything to merit their adoption. They're there. And a family chooses them. And makes them their own. And chooses to love them. And we think about this imagery, it makes me think of, of a father kneeling down before a son he's just adopted. And looking him in the eye and saying, you're my son. And nothing you can ever do will change that. I will love you. I will provide for you. I will protect and defend you. I will teach you. And I will correct you. And you will turn from me. And I will forgive you. And I will always love you. And I will always hope the best for you. And I will always be there for you. Because you are my son. And from this day forward, you will never be alone. And that's the promise he makes. That's the promise we see with the two little boys that are now my, my nephews. They will never be alone. They have a family. And even if something tragic happened, they have a family that will take them. They will never be alone again. And that's the promise God is making to us. You're mine forever. And, and I want you to think about how this permeates our understanding in, of prayer. And this is where it begins to get practical to think about God as Father. Guys, don't go, don't go buy another book about prayer this week. Don't do that. Some of you type A's, that's going to be your urge, right? It's like, oh, we're talking about prayer. I've got to get better at prayer. Let me knock this out. So I'm ahead of the rest of the class because it grades on a curve. Relax. This week, what I want you, if you really want to work on your prayer life this week, if you really want to focus on growing in prayer, I want you to go to the city park. And I want you to hang out for a while. I want you to look for a dad. 
who loves his children. And you watch the way those kids respond to that dad. I can remember vividly our experience as little kids. We would get home on the school bus probably about 4 o'clock. And we would watch uh, the old Adam West reruns of Batman. And so Batman would go on and it would shut off. And right about then, dad would come home. And my dad worked uh, for Marathon Oil. He was uh, at the time a pumper. Uh, So he was in uh, coveralls and uh, a marathon hat, the kind of thing that a trucker wears. And he would walk in the door, open it big, and every time, every time, he would kneel down like this. And dad's a good-sized guy, so I don't have his frame. And, and, and the three of us, we would just charge at him and we would jump on him. And what we do every time, my brother and I would each land on one of his legs and my sister would give him a big hug. And that played out every day. Some days when mom would let us, we would go up to the county road and we would wait for him so that we could ride on the, on the tailgate of his pickup as he came because it felt like being a garbage man, which seemed like a cool job at the time. <laughs> but it was exciting. Dad came home. Now, now mom never had to tell us Hey, your father's home. Go say hi to him. We didn't have to like work up the, should I go talk to dad because he's home? This was a natural response. Why? Because we loved him. We loved him. He was great to us. He worked hard for us. He played ball with us. He taught the Bible to us. He prayed for us. He did the things that a dad's supposed to do. And so when dad came home, it didn't take us thinking through, should I go talk to him? We didn't have to guilt ourselves into talking to him. Like, dad's going to feel bad if I don't go hug him. We were excited. In the same way, last night we got to uh, celebrate with some dear friends in their wedding and do that and and we got home and the kids were in bed. But one of our boys said, I heard your voice. I heard you guys. So I came to see you. Now, we kind of fussed at him because he needed to go to bed, but not hard. It wasn't like, oh, should, should I go? Should I go hug mom and dad? Should I go talk to them? It was just built in. This was a heart response. I said, here he is. And so my question for, for me, not say for you, for me, he said, Maybe, maybe if I really believed God was that kind of father, what would that do to my prayers? What I have to tell myself, it's time to pray now. What I have to kind of shower myself with guilt to make myself go pray more. Because you're a pastor, so you have to pray a certain amount. Whatever the average is, you've got to beat that by 10 minutes. And do we think it pleases God when our desire to pray is built upon guilt or, or, or worried what other people will think about us? I mean, is he that kind of dad that we give lip service to on the holidays because we feel bad if we don't? Or is he the kind of father that has proven himself over and over and over again to be the greatest gift he could give us? Himself. Just more of himself. Because when you read the story of the Bible, when you see what Jesus is saying, what he's saying is, God is that kind of dad. He's the kind of dad that you should run to. If you really knew him, if you really knew him, if you really were aware of what he'd done for you, if you were aware of the links that he had gone to to bring you to himself, the links that he had gone to to restore you, the cost of your adoption, if you were aware of that, 
we wouldn't even have to think twice about, should I go pray? We'd run to him. Now, over time, as this adopted child, our trust in him will grow. And so our conversations with him will will become deeper than they were. At first, we may be tentative and we may be testing. Are you really... Are you really the kind of father you've promised to be? And he'll continue to demonstrate with gentleness that he is. And over time and running to him in that way, we'll see the depth of our prayers and what we share with him and understanding his heart. All that's going to begin to happen. But it begins with this. Understanding he's that kind of dad. He's the kind of dad that we all wish we could be. He's the kind of dad that that for many of us, if we didn't get it, we hoped we would have. And the beautiful thing, I will say this, for those of you who didn't have that kind of dad, is that God has promised to be father to the fatherless too. And God in Jesus has demonstrated not only the willingness to adopt us as sons, but the power to do it when he rose him from the grave. And so the promise of the gospel is this. It's so simple that God has looked upon us, rebellious and wicked, sinful men and women, With no spiritual family. And he's made us his own. He's not only proclaimed us not guilty. He said you're my sons. You're my daughters. You have an inheritance with me. And I will never walk away from you. That's what he's done for us. And the reason he was able to do it. Is because he sent his only son. To die to pay the penalty that we deserve for our sin. And by his great and mighty hand, he rose him from the dead, giving us the promise of eternal life with him forever. And it says to all who would believe, he gave the right to become sons of God. And so the invitation, if you're not a Christian here today, if you walked in uncertain of where you stood from God, is simply to trust that Jesus died for your sins and rose again and that God the Father through the death and resurrection of Jesus is willing to make you his own and give you a forever family with him. And if you're a Christian here today, remind yourself of the kind of dad that he is. Do some things this week to make that obvious and apparent to you so that your first inclination is to run to him. Not to run from it. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for your tremendous goodness to us. That you are our Father. And everything that entails that you have, Lord, you have gone to the ends of the earth to redeem your children. You have ripped open oceans. You have drowned armies. You have destroyed nations. You have sent your only son to die and you have raised him from the dead. All of this to exhibit the kind of father you are, that you are gentle and compassionate, that you are attentive to the needs of your children and that when they cry out to you, you're good in response. But even when we cry and we ask for the wrong things and your goodness to us, you give us what we need anyway. And when we stumble, you restore and forgive us. We thank you for your son, Jesus, our older brother, who has died for us, though he was sinless, to give us an inheritance with you. Father, I pray that our hearts even now would be stirred to worship and celebration in the presence of this kind of dad. 
Lord, I pray that that you would stir our hearts in such a way that prayer would become kind of an innate built in response to what we do, not driven out of guilt or some sense of of of, of self-righteousness or or religiosity, but dr- built out of a passion to be with you, to know you. Lord, I pray that for those of us who have children through our own interactions with them, we would be reminded of how we are to pursue you. That we would grow in that, that we would become a people of prayer. A people who seek you wholeheartedly and enjoy your presence and invite others to do the same as well. It's in Jesus' mighty name. Amen.